So in the opening chapters of Matthew chapter 3, we read about the the ministry of John the Baptist, baptizing. Let's pick it up in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I want to begin this message today by uh, making a few comments about baptism in general. And then approaching this text to see um, the baptizing that was done by John. What what was that? The The baptizing that was done by John. And then John mentions here that there's one coming after him who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus. And so the the third point of this sermon will be the baptizing that was done and is being done by Jesus. And then finally, the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus himself is baptized. Why, Why was he baptized and what does that mean? So let's start with some general observations about baptism. And the first thing is to know that the word baptize is a transliteration of a Greek word that simply means to immerse. So a transliteration is a word that is taken from one language into another language and basically maintaining the same pronunciation in both languages. So that I think in most cultures, uh, they don't have a different word for Coca-Cola. They just call it Coca-Cola. They don't have a different word for Pepsi. They just call it Pepsi. That's, the, that's an example of a transliteration, something that has come from one language into another. If they were going to translate Coca-Cola, then, you know, they might say brown liquid that will make you fat. I mean, <clears throat> something like that. But, uh, but they don't. They transliterate it. So if they were to, tra- if they were to trans- translate, baptize, they would use the word immerse. And this is not just a Baptist thing. Uh, I, I studied Greek in seminary, but most of my Greek came from Ohio University, and I assure you, Ohio University was not trying to strengthen Baptist principles. 
but in, in the, uh, the, the linguistic materials that we use at Ohio University, the word baptizo is, is, means to, to immerse. And so it's not, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it does as a Baptist, you know, uh, so, so I'm proud to be a Baptist. You know, if, if anyone were to ask me, what would you be if you were not a Baptist, the answer would be, I, I would be ashamed of myself. <laughs> so um, when, it comes, when it comes to baptism, I don't think that we should get upset at people who sprinkle or people who, who pour. I think that we should say, you baptize your way, we'll baptize God's way. And uh, so bab- baptism just means immerse. And uh, but then another, another comment about baptism is that it is used symbolically in two different ways in the Bible. So one way that the word baptize is used symbolically is that it means that you are completely surrounded with, you are completely immersed in, you are completely saturated by something. And so an example of this would be uh, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50 when Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I am uh, distressed, is the word that ESV uses. I am distressed until that baptism is accomplished. Now, Jesus has already been baptized in water, so he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the coming, the coming suffering that is, that's going to come upon him. He's known about this for, for months. He's known about this for years that his life is going to be his life is going to be ended very violently at the hands of uh, his enemies. Uh, he he realizes that there is purpose in it, but still the prospect. Can you imagine how bad it would be to know that in three years from now you are going to be killed a very excruciating death of torture by your enemies, and how that would that would enter into your mind. So in Luke 12, 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until, until it's here. Uh, so that baptism is a baptism in suffering. He was going to be surrounded and saturated with suffering. Uh, near the end of his life, the mother of John, uh, of John and James, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, there's something I'd like you to do for me. And he said, what is it? She said, when you come into your kingdom, will you let one of my sons sit at your right hand and one of, your sons, one of my sons sit at your left hand? And Jesus says to James and John, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Are you able to drink the cup that I will have to drink? And they said, yes, we're able. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink that cup. You will indeed be baptized with that baptism. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand it's not for me to grant. That's been appointed by my Father in heaven. But I bring that up to show you that sometimes the word baptism is used to say that you are completely surrounded by, saturated with something. I think this is the teaching in Romans chapter 6 when uh, a questioner asks, shall we sin so that grace may abound? And the answer is, of course not. How could that possibly be? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were immersed into a way of thinking about things, and you were just as completely submerged in the philosophy and teaching and lordship of Jesus as if you had been plunged into it. And so one of the ways that the word baptism is used is to, to talk about a, a symbolic surrounding and saturating with something, suffering, truth, whatever the case may be. 
And a further general comment about baptism, a second way that baptism is used in the Bible is that it is used to, to mark the termination of something and the commencement of something else. So we don't have any instances of baptism in the Old Testament, but there are instances of ceremonial cleansing. So after someone had committed certain sins, there were certain ritualistic cleansings that they had to go through. Of course, they were, they were saying, I repent of this. I'm turning away from this. I'm going to start new. And so there's a ceremonial cleansing. Uh, if if in battle uh, a man decided that he was, in, uh, he was going to take one of the women from a foreign nation uh, to be his wife or to be his slave, then uh, there were certain cleansing rituals. She had to shave off all of her hair. She had to be bathed with water. It's a way of saying this is the end. There's, a, there's something new starting. In the Nazarite ritual, so there, were, there was a vow that, pe- that men could take that they wouldn't they would dedicate themselves entirely to God for a certain period of time. Some people were dedicated their entire lives. John the Baptist was one of those men. And, uh, but there are others who would say, well, you know, for the next two years, I'm going to be a Nazarite. During those two years, he wouldn't cut his hair. Uh, he would not eat anything that was produced from a grapevine. So no, no raisins, no grapes, no wine. And, uh, and, but at the end of his Nazarite vow, then... There was a cleansing ritual. It's like, this is the end of your Nazarite vow. Now this commences the rest of your life. Uh, Baptism in the New Testament is like that. Baptism is like the period at the end of a sentence followed by a capital letter at the beginning of the next sentence. This part of my life is over, period. I am starting a new phase of my life, capital letter. And that's symbolized by being plunged into water, and that plunge into water symbolizes death. It is a proclamation that I am dead to my old self. I don't hear this so much anymore, but uh, in, the old, uh, in years gone by, I would sometimes hear uh, young people say, usually jokingly, you are dead to me. You know, meaning that you, you have done something that I am not going to put up with that. You are dead to me. And they were usually saying that in a joking way. But, of course, if someone says it in a serious way, it's like, I'm going, from now on, I'm just going to act like you are dead. Well, when you are baptized, you are making a statement that that's the way that you're going to regard your life away from God. You're going to say, I'm dead to that. I am not going to live that way anymore. And, of course, in baptism, you don't stay under the water. That's not baptism. That's drowning. If you stay under the water, so you come up out of the water, and that is the capital letter at the beginning of the next sentence that's saying, now something new is beginning. It's, uh, it's similar to taking a bath at the end of a long day where you got very dirty doing hard work. And at the end of the day, not in the middle of the day, But at the end of the day, when you're finished with the work, then you take a bath. It kind of puts a period on the end of the day and say, now it's time for me to rest. And so in general, that is the way that that baptism functions. So it can symbolically mean that you are surrounded by and saturated with something, and it also symbolizes the end of something and the commencement of something else. So baptism is a little bit like a commencement ceremony or a graduation ceremony. 
You're graduating from high school. You're commencing your life as a postgrad, and so on. So that's what that's general comments about baptism. Now, what about the baptism that John did? So the Bible tells us that John came baptizing with a baptism of repentance, baptizing in water with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is exactly Christian baptism. So I I don't think that people who were baptized by John had to be baptized again when they became followers of Jesus. The subjects of John's baptism and Christian baptism are the same. People who repent. The subjects, uh, the, the mode of baptism is the same. They were baptized or immersed in water. And uh, then the expectations were the same. You are supposed to produce fruits in keeping with repentance. It is a baptism in water for repentance and the remission of sins. And that's, that's what happens when you are baptized as a Christian. You are professing that you have repented, and now you're putting a period on that. You are burying that old person who lived in rebellion against God, and you are going to come out of that water as a new person to live in newness of life. This is only a symbol. Baptism in both cases is symbolic. Baptism never produced repentance in the case of John the Baptist, and it doesn't now. So baptism is not, is not part of salvation. The symbol is not. The reality is. Baptism is a picture of a reality. What reality? That now you have stopped the old way of living, you're starting a new way of living. Now you have been surrounded with and saturated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so baptism symbolizes that. Baptism, uh, both John's baptism and Christian baptism, uh, are, are a, a proclamation. A proclamation of the gospel, a proclamation that that in order to be right with God, there needs to be a death and there needs to be a resurrection. It symbolizes our death and our resurrection, but it also symbolizes the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a proclamation that now I am one of the baptized people. I am one of the people who follows Jesus and who is happy to proclaim it to the world through this public uh, proclamation that I now belong to Jesus. I am one of the baptized people. And so I don't think that there is any difference between John's baptism and between Christian baptism. Both John and Jesus baptized for, the, uh, for re- representing repentance and the remission of sins. So that's the baptizing of John. Now what about the baptizing of Jesus? So you see in this text, John says, I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what does that mean? Uh, so it is not, it's not in contrast to John's baptism. It is a, a further thing that Jesus is going to do, that Jesus has now done, But from John's perspective, it's something that Jesus is going to do that I cannot do. I will baptize you in water. Jesus and his disciples will also baptize you in water for repentance and for the remission of sins, to to picture that. 
But Jesus is going to do something that neither I nor anyone else ever has done or ever can do. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does it mean? Let's take that one at a time. What does it mean that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit? And I believe that this is not referring to conversion. I don't think that it's referring to regeneration. Furthermore, I don't think that it's referring to sanctification. Because all of those things had already been being done by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, everyone who was regenerated was regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who was converted was converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who was sanctified was sanctified through the power of the Holy Spirit. So John is saying there's something new that is going to happen. Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and I think that what John is referring to is what happened at the day of Pentecost. At the day of Pentecost, Jesus sent the promised comforter from the Father, and he came down upon the disciples, and the church that was gathered there, and this was a way of the Holy Spirit saying, I accredit you. You are my people. I indwell you. I'm going to stay here. And I empower you. I'm going to equip you for everything that you need to do. Now, this is not the first time in history that something like that happened. When Moses built the tabernacle and dedicated the tabernacle, then there was a a cloud of smoke that came down and filled the tabernacle. And that's a way of saying, this is my tabernacle. I, I own it. I'm going to receive worship that comes here. I'm going to use the truth that, that is symbolized by this tabernacle to, uh, to save my people and to influence my people. And then later, when the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, Solomon built the temple, then again, there is a cloud of smoke that comes down and fills the temple. It's God saying, I acknowledge that this is a temple dedicated to me. I am going to own it. I'm going to receive worship that is, <coughs> that is offered to me here. In the case of the tabernacle and in the case of the temple, I've told you exactly how to build it. You've done it the way that I wanted it done. And so I am now showing my approval by coming down in this cloud of smoke. But you know, it doesn't say anything about fire coming down in those days. And it was smoke. But when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And one of the things that is signified by that is that God is saying, this is no longer the way to come to me. No longer come to me through the old covenant. Now there is a new and a living way that is opened up to come into the most holy place, and that's through the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so a few days after Jesus had ascended back into heaven... Then he sends the Holy Spirit, and this time it's not just smoke, this time it's fire. And he, he baptizes the church with fire. And this is God's way of saying, this has been constructed the way that I want it. Jesus has done it the way that I prescribed to him. I own this as my dwelling place. I own this as the place from which I will receive worship. I own this as the people that I'm going to use to accomplish my work throughout the world. 
And so Jesus baptizes the Holy, with the Holy Spirit. He baptized his new people, the followers of Jesus Christ or Christians. He baptized them as God's dwelling place. So that's what it means to be baptized with fire. But what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, I meant to say? What does it mean to be baptized with fire? I think that the answer to this is obvious in our text. So let's look at what it says in verse 11. Uh, Well, start with verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, simple question here. Don't answer it out loud. Is the fire here good or bad? Well, it's good insofar that it's accomplishing God's purpose, but it's bad for the trees that are cut in there. It's the fire of judgment. And then we have in verse 11, John saying, He who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's what we're trying to determine. What does fire mean there? Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there again, in verse 12, is fire a good thing or is fire a bad thing? Well, it's good insofar as God has it under his control, but it's bad for the chaff. It is the fire of judgment. And so in both of the verses that surround verse 11, we have the word fire. And in both cases, it's obvious that it's the fire of judgment. And so I think that then it's also obvious in verse 11 that the fire of judgment is what Jesus is going to bring. And uh, his fire uh, fell on Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when he destroyed the city of Jerusalem. His fire falls on people who die rebellious against him when they are cast into the flames of hell. At the last day, the world is going to be consumed and the elements are going to melt in flaming fire. That's the judgment of Jesus. And then at the great judgment, then all who are enemies against the Lord are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So I think that all of this is what John is predicting here that is going to be taking place through, through the, the powerful ministry of Jesus. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, and that happened at Pentecost. He's going to baptize with fire. That has been happening for the last 2,000 years and continues to happen as Jesus executes judgment. So we've seen baptism in general. We've seen the baptizing that was done by John. We've seen the baptizing that was done by Jesus. Now let's end up this sermon by looking at the baptism that was done on Jesus. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? So we we see we already saw that the baptism of John was a baptism uh, of repentance. Did Jesus need to repent? No, of course not. It's a baptism for the remission of sins. Did Jesus have sins that he needed to have remitted? No, of course not. So this does not mean that Jesus was cleansed of his his sins, but it is that sense of baptism that this is the end of something and it's the beginning of something else. There is a period that is put at the end of something. This is a period that is put at the end of Jesus' private life his obscure life. You know, for 30 years, I told you, he sat on the bench. And now, at his baptism, there is a period put on the end of that bench sitting time, and now he is going to commence his public ministry. 
which we see happening immediately after this. So the baptism of Jesus was to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when I was talking about the baptism of John the Baptist, I mentioned one reason for John's baptizing, but I never mentioned another reason that was very important. The first reason that I did mention was that it was a baptism that symbolized repentance and remission of sins. But turning your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we will see that there was in fact a second purpose for John's baptizing. So in John chapter 1, let's start reading with verse 29. Now, John is baptizing at the Jordan River. Jesus has already been baptized by him. Jesus has already gone into the wilderness for 40 days. And now he comes out of the wilderness. He comes to the place where John is baptizing. And the next day, he saw Jesus, John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. You see that? So this is a second reason that John was sent to baptize. It was the context in which the Messiah was going to be revealed to John and to Israel. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And here we have it again. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so God had revealed to John, I want you to go and I want you to baptize. I want you to preach a message of repentance and forgiveness of sin. That people are to affiliate themselves with the coming Messiah. And they are to do so through being buried in the waters of baptism and then, and then coming up. But there's another reason, John. One day while you're baptizing, my Messiah is going to come. You have been sent as a forerunner. You're the one who's going ahead of Jesus. And you, well, he didn't say ahead of Jesus, ahead of the Christ. Because, and then you will be able to recognize him when you baptize him. Then heaven is going to be opened and the Holy Spirit is going to descend on him. And that will be obvious. And so that is what happened when Jesus was baptized. Now that leaves us with a little, just a very slight problem. Back in Matthew chapter 3. Why does John say to Jesus what John does say to Jesus? If John doesn't know that this is the Christ yet, then why does John say to him, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Uh, at this point, it seems like John has some idea of who Jesus is. And I, I think that at this point, John is not yet sure that Jesus is the Christ, but there is something about Jesus that causes John to know this is no ordinary man. I think that there was an aura, an atmosphere about Jesus that at times uh, was capable of impressing people 
to a remarkable degree. So, for example, twice in the ministry of Jesus, he cleanses the temple. He goes in with a whip of cords and he drives everybody out of the temple. He does this early in his ministry and he does it in the week that he's crucified. How does a guy get away with that? There are enough of them there that they all could say, hey, let's rush him. We don't have to put up with this. He's causing trouble anyway. How does a guy get away with that? I think that there was an atmosphere of awe and power around Jesus that made people say, nobody ever spoke the way this man does. Or consider uh, when Jesus was in the garden garden of Gethsemane. And the crowd comes with their swords and their torches and their staves. And uh, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And when he said, I am he, then they all, were, they all, they all drew back and fell down to the ground. I think there was just kind of a poof of power that knocked them all down. They get up brushing themselves off. And Jesus says, uh, I asked, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I can surmise that it was probably a little tentative that time. And Jesus said, I told you that I was he. This time, no poof of power. But the poof of power, I think, was just to show, I'm laying down my life. This is a situation that I could easily handle. There were times when Jesus encountered people who were demon-possessed, and the demons felt that aura of magnificence about him. Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One. Have you come to torment us before our time? There was was a, a sense of purity and dignity that surrounded Jesus. And so when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, I think John feels that and says, Oh, I need to be baptized by you. I think this comment from John is revealing. I think that it reveals that there is a sense in which there is some discrimination that is exercised when you baptize someone. When we as a church baptize someone, we never baptize someone without first talking to them, without first interviewing them to make sure that they understand the gospel. Because there is a sense in which when you baptize someone, you you are saying, I believe you're telling the truth. I believe that you are repenting of your sin. I believe that you have trusted in Christ. And uh, John says, I I just don't feel like I'm worthy to exercise that kind of discrimination when it comes to you. And Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I'm coming to the conclusion of my lifetime of separation and seclusion I'm entering into my life of public service that's going to culminate in my death, burial, and resurrection. And so let's fulfill all righteousness by going through this commencement ceremony, this graduation ceremony, and also this proclamation of the gospel. Because, you know, baptism is a proclamation of the gospel. Which gospel? Well, there are a lot of people who say that they preach the gospel, and there are a lot of groups who practice baptism. I believe that baptism is a proclamation of the gospel, 
that is spoken by the group doing the baptizing. And this is why I believe that the administrator of the baptism matters. I'm not talking about whether it's the preacher or a deacon who does the baptizing. I mean that it needs to be a church that understands the gospel. And so there are cults that practice baptism by immersion. But we wouldn't receive that as legitimate baptism because they're preaching a false gospel. There are groups that practice baptism by immersion and they do it only to professing believers. But they say that you can lose your salvation and that means that somehow you must have earned it yourself. And then there are other groups that baptize by saying this is an essential part of your conversion. You cannot be saved unless you are baptized. We're not going to interview you. We're not going to talk to you about whether or not you understand the gospel. We are just going to baptize you. And we would not receive baptism from a group like that either because that's a false gospel. And so the administrator of baptism matters. And I think that that is implied here in John the Baptist's objection. I, I need to be baptized by you. You're the one who is in a position to exercise discernment. You're the one who uh, apparently has been endured with such authority from on high. But what he may have said, I surmise this to be true, was confirmed to be true when he baptized Jesus and Jesus was praying. Now, I pointed this out to you when I read it in the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't say it here in Matthew, but it says that Jesus was praying. And I think that he was praying specifically for two things. I think he was praying specifically for empowerment to do the task that was ahead of him. And he was praying for accreditation from God the Father. I, I need special power to do this. And when he was baptized, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit descends on him. You are empowered, my son, to do the work. And then the accreditation comes when God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is well qualified to do the task that he is about to undertake. There is no sin in him. You perhaps have read that when a lamb was being set aside for the Passover, that there was a period of time when it was to be taken out of the flock and watched for a few days. Just to make sure that it wasn't a sick lamb, to make sure that it never had any flaws. For 30 years, Jesus has been set apart and God has been watching him. And at the end of those 30 years, God says, he is my man. He is my son. I am well pleased with him. Carry on, son. I give you the equipment that you need. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. John says in John chapter 3, to him God gives the Spirit without measure. He had the Holy Spirit as much as he needed to accomplish the task. And he was going to need it because the next thing that we read is that he goes out into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil. But I want to conclude this sermon with observing that at the baptism of Jesus, all three persons of the Trinity were present. So you have God the Son being baptized. You have God the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. You have God the Father speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When you follow the Lord in baptism, it needs to be after you have repented. 
And baptism is the ceremony that says, I am putting a, I am putting a period on the end of that. I am, in fact, I am putting my old self to death and I'm burying my old self in the waters of baptism. And now I'm coming out, out of the water, a new person to follow after Jesus. My, my concluding question for you is this. If God was well pleased with Jesus, ought not you and I to be well pleased with Jesus? If you're pleased with Jesus, you and God are on the same side. You join hands together with God the Father when you are pleased with Jesus. You're reconciled to God the Father when you are pleased with Jesus. You're in a position to do work with the Father when you are pleased with Jesus. This past year in Bible school, I taught the children a song that goes like this. God is happy with Jesus as the sinner's Savior. God is happy with Jesus, Christ his only Son, when he died for sinners and then rose again. God said that is quite enough to take away the sin of sinners. God is happy with Jesus as the sinner's Savior. God is happy with Jesus. I'll be happy too. I'll be happy too. Are you happy with Jesus? If you're happy with Jesus, receive him as your Savior and Lord. And then talk to us. That We want to help you to understand and discern whether or not you really have received the Lord Jesus Christ. And then how happy we will be to aid you as you follow the example of our Lord in being baptized. It is time for uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper, which is an 